Michael said, I'm free to nominate people for that choir. So I nominate y'all. He did a good job with that last song. A lot of people haven't heard that one in a long time. That's what we're going to be talking about today, though. That, that glorious day, what does that look like? And by the way, if you happen to be getting seasick as you're watching the screen up there, that, you see that moving? That's the wind moving the roof. That means the roof moves, right? Okay, so that, that's 32 feet up to the peak, and that, that projector's anchored in the peak. And so if it moves, just watch the side screens because they're not the ones rocking. It's just the center one, okay? All right. So I, I just want to uh, pray with you in just a minute um, before we set this up a little bit. But before we do that, let me remind you of that luncheon that Kyle mentioned earlier with Katie Scott downstairs after this service. If you're at all interested in missions or hearing about what she's going to be doing, and by the way, she's trying to raise support because of the work she's going to be doing with underprivileged children in Haiti. Pay, pay attention to that opportunity. And then also that luncheon, or that supper, I'm sorry, that uh, is Friday um, for you if you're in your 20s or 30s, you want to get to know people here at the church. There's other opportunities if you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s on up that'll be coming up. But this one for the 20s and 30s, I know the address on that form and those people at that house, they'll take good care of you. I promise you. Okay. So let's, let's talk about where we left off at. Um, we left off in Romans chapter 13 and three weeks ago we looked at verse 14. So look with me on the screen again at what Paul was driving towards. He said, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What's he pushing us toward here? That phrase is a summary of sanctification. And if you're new to church, you don't know what that big $10 word is. But sanctification is the process of spiritual growth. In other words, maturing in Jesus, becoming more like Jesus. So sanctification is not about getting saved. It's because you are saved because you're looking forward to that day when you see Jesus face to face. So as we put on Jesus, he actually becomes more evident in our life. Our friends, our neighbors can look at us and say, there's something about you. His character becomes our character. So today, I want to help you with this. We should be able to look at ourselves and say, I'm further along in my walk than what I was a year ago at this time. I'm further along than what I was five years ago at this time. And if you can't say that with confidence, I'm here to help you with that today. I'm going to give you some measuring rods by which you can measure where am I at in the process of this. With that in mind, let's go to prayer. I'd love to pray with you before we step into this passage. Father, first of all, we want to lift up to you Katie and what she's going to be doing in Haiti and the work that you've called her to. Thank you for her willingness to um, spend her life serving your kingdom and, and working with underprivileged children in that way. Bless that effort, Father. For us who have gathered right now for the auditorium and for those who are watching online, we pray that you would use this time to strengthen us in our walk, but also show us what your call is upon us, what you expect of us. We pray for clarity in our thinking of what your expectations are and why we should have that expectation. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we asked this question, who is my neighbor? Because Jesus said, you've got to love your neighbor like you love yourself. It's what we landed on. And so I asked the question, well, who is my neighbor then? And as a group, we responded with the thought, it's the one who's near me. That's the biblical definition for a neighbor, someone who's near me, not just a person who happens to own a home next to my home, or geographically, they live in the apartment next to me, but the one who's near me at work or at school or at the coffee shop. 
See, you see this phrase up on the screen, this Greek word, plasion, and plasion is the first Greek word in your notes, and it's talking about neighbor. And so we landed on that phrase last week, who is my neighbor, the one who is near me? Well, three times this morning, I'm going to ask you to respond the same way you did last week. When I say, who is my neighbor, New Hope, I'd like to ask you to respond, the one who is near me. So let's practice that. Who is my neighbor, New Hope? There we go. Very good. So that placeion is the person in the cubicle next to me, the person with a locker in the hallway next to me, the, the person on campus next to me that person that I have contact with. Paul writes this in verse 10 of chapter 13. Love does no wrong to a placeion. Therefore, love is the fulfillment. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. So the love that we're supposed to be demonstrating as followers of Christ, that's the response I'm supposed to have if my heart's lined up with God. So in really strong terms, Paul's saying, Love expresses itself towards that person in the cubicle, that person in the hallway, that person in the coffee shop, that person that might have a home next door to me, even if they got warts and wrinkles in their personality, they might be difficult to get along with. You have anybody like that in your life, somebody who's got warts and wrinkles in their personality? You don't have to raise your hand. But, um, just think about that. Rick Warren described it this way. Rick wrote a book back in the early 2000s um, called Purpose Driven Life. And in Purpose Driven Life, he described what's known as an EGR. If you're not familiar with that term, EGR stands for extra grace required. And everybody knows somebody like that. Well, at least Rick writes it this way. He says, we all know somebody who needs extra grace from us to extend towards them because they're difficult. They've got warts and wrinkles in their life. But he said, in every social circle, there's always one. However, if you're in a social circle and you look around and you can't identify who that EGR is, it's you, right? <clears throat> right? And, and you may not even be aware of it, but other people are aware of it. We're supposed to love our neighbor even if they've got warts and wrinkles. We've got people like that in our life, and most of us do. Paul's writing where the love of God is really genuine, it's going to be manifested through action, and there's going to be evidence of it. You're going to be able to see it. And now he makes what seems like a hard shift, and he quickly moves away from talking about the neighbor and says, also, you've got to be modeling Jesus to that one and to everybody else who's watching you. You're going to see him explain that today as he talks about sanctification. And we just said a minute ago that sanctification is to be clothed with Christ. Let me give you the way the Old Testament pictured it. The, the ancients described putting on clothing as a description of a relationship with God. Look with me on the screens at this particular verse, Isaiah 61.10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. There's a, there's a word picture for you. God surrounding you with a robe. Elijah and Elisha, if you're familiar with that story, Elijah comes to a point where he takes off his mantle or his cloak and he puts it on Elisha and he transfers power over to him. That's the imagery that's being used in the Bible and we find it again in Ephesians 4. Verse 24 says this, put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God. It's already been created in righteousness in you and holiness of the truth. So in context, here's what we're seeing already developing. There is something that's already true about you. You've already got the righteousness of God if you're a believer in Jesus. It's in you. And there's something that should be true about you 
In other words, there's a holiness you already have. God sees you as holy. Do you believe that this morning? God sees you that way. There's a holiness you already have, and there's a holiness we must continue to pursue. Dr. MacArthur wrote it this way. John MacArthur's quote is this. We have been made righteous, yet we strive to live righteously. It's a good summary. Here's a really great summary from the Bible. It comes from 1 Corinthians. This might be a verse you want to write down in your Bible or perhaps in your notes this morning because he's describing the stages that we're talking about. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this. We, we knew hope. We as believers are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Do you see the stages there? He became first to us wisdom. There's people in this auditorium right now who became believers in Jesus in the last two years. And at some point in the last two years, it clicked. I get it. I see it. I understand it now. And and the wisdom of God was revealed to them in Jesus that he would save them. And so as a result, Corinthians says, as a result of that, you got righteousness. And as a result of the righteousness, you're pursuing sanctification. There's that word. And then ultimately, redemption. It means, Christian, if you're a follower of Christ this morning, you already are clothed with Christ. You have his righteousness. In other words, you can't get more saved. Say amen if you believe that. You cannot get more saved. You are saved if you're a believer. But I can become, I can become more like Jesus. So what we're really talking about here is the difference between justification and sanctification. Let me put those two up on the screen for you. We'll start with justification. What is justification? That's something that's accomplished once. It refers to your positional righteousness. In other words, you are this morning who God declares you to be. Regardless of what you think of your sin life and the things you've been involved in the past or the things you might do in the future, if God declares you to be forgiven of sins, you are forgiven of your sins. You are who God declares you to be. That's justification, and that's a one and done. But then there's sanctification. And sanctification is a lifelong process of growing in your practical righteousness. And a lot of people are confused about that. They wonder why, if I'm a Christian, do I still lose my temper? Why do I say the things I shouldn't say? Why do I do the things I don't want to do? Why do I look at the things I don't want to look at? Well, you're not fully sanctified. That's a lifelong process of becoming more and more like Christ. So Paul writes these things in chapter 13. In verse 11, he says it this way. Do this. Do what, Paul? We'll come back to that in just a second. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. I thought, Mark, you just said we already are saved. What am I missing here? Let's back up. Start with what he's reminding us of. He says every hour that clicks by is one hour that you are closer to the return of Jesus coming back. It starts right there. His return, your redemption, is closer today than it was one week ago Sunday morning. You're seven days closer to it. So each phrase that he's using here is expressing a sense of urgency, saying the opportunity is really brief. You are running out of time. So the time is now. There's no time for apathy. There's no time for complacency. You can't be asleep at the wheel. Now, if something was really urgent 2,000 years ago when Paul was on the planet... Would it not be even more urgent 
today because the time is limited. Why is it so urgent? Because the opportunity to tell your placeion, your neighbor, about who Jesus is, you can't do it in eternity. You can only do it here on this planet. You're running out of time. They are running out of time. As you're going to see him write in just a moment, the day is approaching. So he says in verse 11, do this, do what, Paul? Do this knowing the time. So he just emphasized in verses 8 through 10, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus said. Well, who is my neighbor, New Hope? One is near me. Because you've got to be aware of the time. And he's not referring to chronology. He doesn't use the word chronos. He's not talking about the fact that it's 1139 in the morning. He's using the word kairos here. Not chronos, but kairos. It's the other Greek word this morning. And kairos is talking about an era, an epoch, an opportunity within that epoch of time. So he speaks of time as an era here. Jesus refers to the exact same thing when he's talking to a group of individuals about being aware of the time. Let me take you up on the screen to Matthew 16:1. Jesus was saying this, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky but cannot discern the signs of the kairos? Jesus is speaking of individuals who are not aware of what God is doing in an age right before their eyes. The Messiah stands right in front of them, and they're absolutely clueless to what God is doing, and they're in the midst of the epoch of redemption, and yet they don't recognize it, and that is just like many people today in 2019. And I'm going to speak specifically to believers right now. I'm sorry if you're in the room and you're a non-believer and you feel like I'm not talking to you, but believers, hear me out on this. this. I don't mean this as an insult because many people in the church today are untaught or sadly, they have very limited interest in God's word. There is a legitimate ignorance concerning the things surrounding the returning of Jesus Christ. And Paul's aware that that's true there. These days in our age, many people have really bad theology. And they get their theology through internet information and through coffee shop conversations or maybe from relatives who really don't know what they're talking about. And they get misinformation and they might even get information from bad lyrics from music. They have all kinds of sources, but they don't go to the word. It was true in the early church, and for that reason, Paul is shouting out, wake up, pay attention to what's going on around you. Verse 11, already the hour for you to awaken is at hand. So he's calling down through the corridors of time, 2,000 years to our generation, saying, wake up from slothfulness. That's a match from Ephesians 5.14. Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's not talking about non-believers. That's talking about church people. It's talking about believers in Jesus Christ who are spiritually lazy, and spiritual laziness does something. It can cause you to appear as though you have no life. So Paul's talking about them as though they're dead. Wake up. 
being ignorant of God's word and God's activity, and he's not accusing, and I'm not accusing, he's not even suggesting these people don't know Jesus. He's just saying, your sluggishness is intolerable. Apparently, they seem completely unconcerned about what the Lord is doing and even less concerned about the urgency that Jesus is coming again. Verse 11 says this, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Nearer? I I don't get that, Mark. What am I missing? How can it be nearer? I thought I am saved. What this is talking about is the completion of your salvation. In other words, you haven't known full redemption at this point yet. There's a future redemption coming, and what he's speaking of specifically is your glorified body when you will receive a new makeover, if you will, physically. Because you've been redeemed spiritually, your soul is redeemed, it's destined for eternity, but there's a glorification coming. There will be a transformation of you. Who today is ready for a new body? If you're over 30, you probably are. If you're under 30, you're thinking, eh, I'm not so bad with what I've got. But Scripture's got some new information for you. Let me just do a quick review of where we've been so far so you can catch up to what we're talking about here. Look with me on the screen at justification. Justification is your positional righteousness. What we talked about being a one and done, forever saved from the penalty of sin. Praise God for that reality. That's a truth of you this morning. But justification transfers over to sanctification, and sanctification is that lifelong process of acting and behaving more like Jesus. And then very subtly, Paul has slid in there this last one, glorification. And he's talking about the final stage here, and he's referring to your ultimate perfection of when you become like Jesus fully, and that's the final aspect of salvation, when Jesus welcomes you to your eternal home. I know many of you all this morning have family and friends who are already on the other side and you just can't wait to see them again. What kind of a reunion will that be? How great will that be? This is the things that he's building towards here. Earlier, Paul wrote this in Romans 8, 23. Remember back in June of 2018, we were in chapter eight, he wrote this. We wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our body. See, that's the future aspect of salvation. That's why he says it's nearer to us than when we first believed. And some of y'all are like, bring it right now. Come, Lord Jesus. Well, throughout the New Testament, believers in Jesus are told to look for the return of the king. When is the last time you allowed yourself before this morning to stop and think about the return of Jesus? Just drink it in and think, what will that moment be like? It's the ultimate motivation that Paul's writing about here for living before your placeion, before your neighbors, with the right perspective. Let me give you three verses. You might want to write these down in your notes also. The first one comes from Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 12. Live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. It's good. How about Hebrews 10, 24? Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I told you last week that one means don't skip church. Encourage each other. Stimulate each other to love. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. 
Here's a fourth one. And this comes right from Jesus. And this is from Revelation 22. Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. And many people read that and they think, yeah, right. It's been 2,000 years and he hasn't come yet. You've been saying that a long time. Where's the promise? Where's the fulfillment of that? Well, Scripture says actually in every generation there will be a series of skeptics and they will increase in their mocking of people who believe. Look with me up on the screen at first, or 2 Peter 3.4. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. First know this, if you happen to be tripping over Jesus saying, I come quickly, the quickly that he's talking about is when it happens, it happens rapidly, meaning there's no warning whatsoever. It happens in very, very quick succession. So he's speaking of something that catches people completely by surprise. That's what behold, I come quickly means. Just think of what the book of Revelation speaks of when it says in seven years, the population of this planet will be decimated. The seven years of tribulation are nothing but a blink of the eye compared to thousands of years of human presence on this planet. And yet Jesus says when it happens, it's going to happen very quickly in rapid succession. In seven years, it's all going to be over. Now, you and I, we don't know actually when Christ's second coming is going to happen. But Scripture speaks to those things. 1 Thessalonians 5.1 Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren... You have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with a child, and they shall not escape. Don't you find it really interesting that Paul writes here in 1 Thessalonians, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Why? Because in the early church, they talked about the return of Jesus so much. He's saying, you don't need me to remind you of something you already know. Well, I'm here to tell you, in this day and age, in the 21st century, we have stopped talking about the first or the second coming of Jesus. The church has failed in that. We need to talk about this reality more. It's the reason for the hope that is within us. Now, the reality is, you and I don't know the hour of Christ's second coming, and don't believe somebody who tells you that they do, just a tip, okay? I don't know how much sand remains in the hourglass of heaven. I, I don't know, and none of us do. But the evidence is, it sure looks like there's not much time left. Probably every generation has said that. Here's what I do know. It's 2,000 years closer than it was. We are closer than any generation before us. You are closer today than you were seven days ago. If you were here at church last weekend, you're closer now than what you were last weekend. Every single day you live, you're one day closer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, how great is that? Now, if you're 22, you're thinking, not so great. Here's why I say that. Because when I was 22, I wasn't thinking that was so great. I heard people who were in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s talking about the return of Jesus. They're saying, won't that be great? 
And I'm thinking, I got my whole life ahead of me. I'm not thinking that's so great. Here's why we think that way, especially when we're younger. We like our Twitter feed. We like our coffee at the coffee shop. You haven't necessarily been to Alaska yet or maybe to Hawaii. And you think, there's places I want to go. There's things I want to see. I want to get married. I'd like to have babies. You old people have lived through all that already. I want that too. Well, let me encourage you, if that's your mindset this morning, to get a new view if you're not ready for his return. Make sure that if you're not ready for his return, it's for the right reason. You mean there is a right reason? There's only one right reason to not want to see Jesus return yet. And that's so more people come to know who Jesus is. Scripture speaks specifically to that. 2 Peter 3.8. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So the reason God's being patient is not for more party time. It's not so we can acquire more, and it's not for more coffee shop experiences. It's so that more people get saved, so more people know who Jesus is. And so you and I find ourselves in the in-between. We're tweeners. We're in between the resurrection and the second coming, and we find ourselves in between. What do we do until then? Well, certainly, for sure, live out your life that God has blessed you with to the absolute fullest he intended for you to live it out. Be Christ person in the marketplace, and I do mean Christ person first, marketplace second. Be what God intended for you to be wherever you find yourself. And if you find yourself in ministry or in mission, be Christ person to the ultimate that you can be in that place. The same is true in the marketplace because your neighbors are watching you. The placeion wants to see what does it look like to live with Jesus. Paul writes, for this reason, while you're doing that, remember this, verse 12, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. The night is almost gone. Here's the imagery that he's using. He's reaching over into the military world again. He's borrowed the imagery of a soldier who's just picked up a 24-hour pass. He's got leave, and he can go out and do whatever he wants. And his commanding officer says, just be back in 24 hours. So he finds himself out on an all-night party, and now it's 5 a.m., and he's still in his party clothes. Maybe he's had too much to drink, and he, he passes out into a sleep. But the dawn is approaching, and in the distance, there's a battle on the horizon. So as daylight approaches, his commanding officer finds him and says, wake up, put on your armor. There's a battle waiting for you to engage in. Paul's writing the time of rebellion and the sin on this planet is about to end and God's time of judgment is approaching and then comes the eternal righteousness when you will know your full salvation. So in the Bible, when the word day is used, especially in association with Jesus, it's talking about the dawning of the revelation of Christ's return. And he's contrasted that with the word night. And the night he's talking about is the spiritual darkness here. And he says it's almost over. Now, from a human viewpoint, living here in February of 2019, we would look around and say, man, it doesn't feel like it's almost over. Doesn't it just feel like this darkness and wickedness is never going to end? Aren't you just tired? 
of the darkness. Every time you pick up the news, you turn on news reports, and it looks like, man, it can't get any worse than that. And the next day it does. You think, well, I didn't see that one coming. And it seems like Satan's getting stronger and stronger, and he's got a great pull. Well, this world is not becoming more godly. It's actually becoming more vicious and more violent and more ferocious. Second Timothy 3.13 says this, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And that's enough to make you want to move to Alaska. Well, maybe not you. Maybe that's not your thing, but that's my thing. I love to go find a mountain and a lake and tuck away my family and just hide. Maybe your thing is Hawaii. Maybe you're thinking Costa Rica. You want to go someplace and just duck. I want to get out of this mess. Know this. God saw this increasing wickedness, and he said, don't be surprised by this. Don't be shocked, and don't stick your head in the sand by all means. Use the knowledge as motivation. Jesus said in Matthew 22, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. What was it like in the days of Noah? Things were pretty messed up. God wanted to take out the entire planet. Things were that bad, and Jesus said that's the way it's going to be here in the coming of Jesus. So in the meantime, we're the tweeners. What do we do in this time in between? Verse 12, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. How can he be saying that to the church? How could the church, how could believers be caught up in deeds of darkness? Well, the way this is actually written, he's talking about people repenting, and immediately people think, I already did that. I repented when I came to faith in Jesus and I recognized that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. Hear this. All sin activity that you found yourself involved in this last week or you might find yourself involved in next week, believers find themselves tripped up, easily entangled, Paul writes, and we have to repent. God, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. I don't, I don't want to behave that way. And the reality is we sin by choice. Voluntarily, we clothe ourselves with evil behavior. And all the time thinking grace, boy, I'm glad I got grace. I'm glad I got Jesus because he'll forgive me for what I just did. Well, that's true. But we're told not to use grace as an excuse. Don't continue in sin that grace would abound. Scripture says, in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can reverse that behavior. That's why he says, lay it aside. Take off that clothing, put it to the side, and put on the armor. Ephesians 4.22, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Get your amen ready for this. I hope you agree with this. When you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were forgiven of all your sins, past, present, future. That is a great promise. That's justification. We were forgiven of everything. So it doesn't hang on us when we stand before God the Father. So his perfect righteousness was applied to us. But as long as you are in this mortal body which needs a complete makeover, as long as you're on this planet, you're going to continue to find yourself tripped up in sin. So Paul's saying lay that aside because at no time does a Christian have to yield to sin's power. So he writes, put on the armor of light. Why does he use the image of armor here? Why pull in the imagery of a soldier? Because we've been told other places in the New Testament 
Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the wicked one. Because Satan's launching the attack. It's still nighttime. It's not yet daytime. So verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and in jealousy. Any thinking person can read that and say, I get it, Mark. Enough said. I, I don't need any more. That's, that's detail enough. And maybe some of you are feeling the weight of the things that Paul mentions right there. I don't want to continue doing those things. I get it. Let me just give you two words out of that before we finish with verse 14. Behave properly. What does it mean to behave properly, Paul? That, that means to live a life consistent with who God declared you to be. You're not just forgiven, you're righteous. God sees you as righteous at this moment in time. He looks up to you and he sees Jesus. And so he's saying, let that righteousness that he sees you with be reflected on the outside of you. It's got to be a mirror. So I want you to read this, and you see it on the screen because sometimes reading it really stays with us. A sanctified life mirrors a justified life. You're justified. Therefore, let your sanctification show so that people understand who you belong to because a Christian who's not living a holy life that's someone who's not comprehending the significance of the return of the king. So Paul ends with verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. That we can put on Jesus. Do you know what that means? That means something miraculous to, to sorry, it's so big of a word I can't even get it out. Stupendous happened 2,000 years ago. Something amazing happened 2,000 years ago. Why do I say it that way? Because who would, would want to put on the character of a dead man? Who would want to put on the character of somebody who was killed by Rome as an execution if he didn't actually rise again? Who would want that? So in one breath, he's complaining this thought in this one sentence of the return of the king and the resurrection of Jesus because why would you want to put on Jesus unless you knew this was real? That you know, that you know, that you know that Jesus is coming again? That's why Paul writes with a sense of urgency. So he says, put on Jesus. As you and I mature, we naturally want to get rid of old clothing. Old clothing is continually thrown away. I'm not wearing the blue jeans I was wearing when I was 14 years old. That'd be weird. <laughs> when I was 14, I was five foot six. When I was 18, I was six foot two. I grew a lot in two years, four years. Sorry, my math's not good. So over that period of time, my mom threw out jeans or she passed them down to my brothers. We have old, tattered clothing in our closets. We all do. We have things we probably should get rid of. Sometimes we really want to hang on to them. Paul says, you've got to exchange your clothing. You've got to get rid of the old clothing. Put on the clothing of righteousness, of holiness, of love. It's as though someone has pants that are too short, shirts that are full of holes, and another individual comes to them and says, here, here's brand new clothing. You can put this on. And that individual says, I really kind of like my old clothes. I, I'm attached to them. I, I want to keep these ones. 
people say, why, why would you want to do that? The process of sanctification is this. As you advance in Jesus, you outgrow your past. So Christ's character becomes my own character to the degree that the highest compliment that somebody can possibly pay to you this morning is to say to you, I see Jesus in you. Would that not be cool to hear? Wouldn't you love your placeion, the people in your cubicles or in your hallway or in your neighborhood to say, there is something different about you. Are all the people in your church that way? Why are you different? They may not even know that they see Jesus in you. But that's why he writes this way. This is what Paul had in mind. Christ is already in you. You're already destined for eternity, and you're working through sanctification. But we do this because we looked to the day when he returns. Why? Well, John writes why. Because 1 John 3, 2, we shall be like him. Not trying to be like him, we will be like him according to Scripture. Why? Because we're going to see him as he is. We're going to be right there with him. Here's where the practical stuff comes in to put a handle on this so you can carry it out the door with you this morning. Here's some measuring rods for yourself. These four things are going to pop up on the screen are really practical growth measurements. We grow as we study and meditate on his word. We grow as we dive into God's word. So I'm going to ask you this question this morning. Does God's word make more sense to you than it did a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago? Are you putting the pieces together? Are you growing in your understanding of God's word? Here's the second one. We grow as we speak with him in prayer. So I'm asking you, do you find yourself progressing in your prayer life? Now that ebbs and flows because at times of crisis in our life, we get to be pretty good prayer warriors, right? And times crisis goes away, <laughs> prayer seems to go away. But are you progressing in that? Here's a third one. We grow as we rely on the Holy Spirit. This is a big one. Can I say that I see the fruits of the Spirit increasing in me? What do you mean, Mark? Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, self-control, and increasing, Scripture says. Are we increasing in those things? Are the gifts of the Spirit that God placed in me, things that I'm using, are they growing? Here's one for extra credit. You've seen this one just 20 minutes ago. Hebrews 10, 24. We grow as we stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. After the Saturday night service, we did Q&A last night, and, and somebody said, Mark, you brought up that same verse at least four times in the last two weeks. Are, are you sensing like people are skipping church these days? Do you know the average American considers himself a regular attender at church if they show up one Sunday a month? What do you do with that if you say, I love Jesus, I'm passionate, and I, I want to be a, a, an example to the placeion around me? And Scripture says you get encouraged to do that when we meet together. It doesn't have to be just in an auditorium. It can be in the coffee shop. can be out on the street. But we strengthen each other as we hang out together. And when we come to church together like this, what we do is we equip each other. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, He is coming back, New Hope. 
Hope you believe that, because God can't lie. And he said this is going to happen. So Hebrews 10.35 says, he who is coming will come and will not delay. So the big question is when? Scripture speaks to this, 2 Peter 3.3. We looked at this 10 minutes ago. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. You believe that? You really think that guy died 2,000 years ago? That was God? And he died for your sins? And you think he's coming back again? In what we know today as modern-day Syria, I'm closing with this, by the way, we know of it in the Bible as Antioch. In Antioch, which was a large metropolis, there was a term they used to describe believers in Jesus, people who actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And they used it as a term of derision. In other words, they insulted them by saying, you believe that? So the first time you find it mentioned is in the city of Antioch in the book of Acts that they called them Christians, which means little Christ. So when Scripture refers to us as Christians, we're the little image of the bigger image. You only find that term used three times in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, it's used there, and then you find it used with Paul as he's talking to King Agrippa, and he's on trial. And King Agrippa says to Paul, Paul, you really think in such a short period of time you're going to convince me to become a Christian? Yeah, right. I don't think so, Paul. And he used it as a term of insult. And the last time you find it used is right here, 1 Peter 4.16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. Literally saying, accept that name as a badge of honor, new hope. Why? Because it identifies you with your Savior. Because after all, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And at that name, every knee will bow one day and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to glory of God the Father. So wear that name as a badge of honor among your neighborhood. Those whom you come in contact with every single day, we put on Jesus as a badge of honor because they need to know why do you have a hope that is within you. I want to pray for us as we go out the door that we would not forget that. Would you join me? Father, I'm so grateful for my fellow believers in this auditorium who have taken this time to study your word. I'm, I'm thankful for those who might not yet be believers that have taken time to try and understand this that you have brought us together in this moment is not by accident. It's because you wanted us to be equipped. And Father, I pray that it would not escape, but rather that you would use it through the power of the Holy Spirit to send us out to be effective Christians. I'm good with the title, Little Christ. I would do anything to be more like him. And it's so easy to say in this moment on a Sunday morning when we're in church. God, let that be true of our words, of our mouth, of the meditations of our heart, six hours from now, 24 hours from now, that we want to be more and more like this one, that we want to put him on so that our neighbors would come to know why we have the hope. 
Help us, Father, as we press on towards the high calling of Christ Jesus. We ask this in his magnificent name. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.